0: is Chelsea Higgs-Wise, and I decided to start a show about being the biracial girl who was living her life, being half and half, never picking a side until one day the world informed me, girl, you're black. I'm from the... Listening to Race Capital with Chelsea Higgs Wise and Cat Maudlin Jackson. So before we dive into the conversation today, it's time to chat a little bit about what's on our radar in the news. Cat, you want to go first? Well, I will just start off by saying Ramadan
1: Kareem to our Muslim listeners. Ramadan started as of this recording a week and a half ago. So may you all have a very wonderful holiday. Very
0: nice. Yes. I want to just talk about a little bit what's on my radar locally first that... We are going to have a 5th district election this year, in November, a special election. And we already know that Thad Williamson, a former senior director, advisor of Mayor Stoney, has put a very soft announcement out saying that he's considering. Considering, in air quotes. (laughs) In air quotes. And there is a link to his website where you can sign up for emails and keep up to date with his decision. But everyone keep watch for what's going to happen in that 5th district here in RVA.
1: And while we're on the keeping your eyes peeled civic engagement vein, I just want to point out that VCU is holding forums and Q&A sessions right now with each of the four candidates for the university's new chief of police. Yes. So those are going to be taking place in the middle of the day in May and June because, you know, that's a reasonable time to expect people to attend. Especially students who aren't they at home? Yeah. In the yeah. summer.
0: This is yep. very intentional to make sure they are have top engagement, I see. Right, right. And they will be
1: recorded. Video will be posted. But the key thing here is that if anybody wants to submit feedback on this, you can do so online. And the deadline for that is Friday, June 7th.
0: I'd also like to bring up in Virginia news that Senator Jim McClellan announced that she started a new PAC, Virginia United. I saw that. Which is giving all of us the feels that maybe she's running for an even bigger office, Madam Governor, which would be amazing. So that's just kind of what's on the ground rumor mill. But congratulations to Senator McClellan on that PAC. Another
1: tidbit locally, mm-hmm. um,
0: statewide. Today is May 15th. Which
1: means that we are in the middle of the month that Governor Northam just designated as Second Chance Month.
0: I'm sorry. <laughs> Wait, what? Wait, that—that that
1: is right, Chelsea and the world. Governor Northam has designated May oh. as Second Chance Month, so y'all can.
0: Kat, I need you to tell me right now, right now, what is this? Hi. We don't have time. I need everyone to understand that Kat doesn't give me a heads up about what she's about to say. And she knows she just triggered something. But I'm going to focus and like, this is second chance month. Is he asking for a second? We don't have time for that. But all right. Not mental health month. That's not what May is about, by nope. the way.
1: Nope. Not transportation.
0: <laughs> second chance month because we all need a second chance.
1: Especially white men.
0: Oh, oh my goodness. Just because. Okay. All right.
1: So also in Virginia policing, specifically here in our backyard of Richmond, last week we learned that the RPD officer who threatened children, black students outside of Albert Hill Middle School, has rescinded his offer to apologize to the students publicly.
0: Yes. He said he could not handle it. (laughs) Look, I'm really at the point of, all right, he did something wrong. He didn't get fired as soon as this happened. All right, we're going to do some mediation. I appreciate Dr. Ron Bergatt doing that and being in that space for the students, the parents, and this officer. But now that he's publicly saying he can't face it, I do believe that this should be really looked at. Could he perform his job? At this point, you're not keeping promises to the community. The inappropriate conduct, code of conduct... I do. I don't understand why we aren't seeing more advocacy for this officer to be terminated completely. And if I was in any type of leadership, I would not want that officer walking around and not being able to fully acknowledge and recognize his own harm in this community and being able to keep the job, the same job that perpetuates the mistrust of the community. They have not officially released his name, which again drives me nuts and up against a wall because of the protections that the people in blue get versus. Black Lives versus People, Richmonders. and that protection of his name is ridiculous. I will say that just watching the Twitter sphere, the name has been put out there, allegedly who this was. If you are happen to follow the Queer Crimer, you might have seen that on Twitter. But that tells you a lot about Richmond Police Department, about the administration, about city council, and just how complicit we are right now with policing. In other news, oh, let's just stay on this policing then. I'm going to go. National policing, if we're still here, we learned last week as well about extra evidence in the Sandra Bland case. And we learned that there was a video from her cell phone that was not introduced in court and really negates the officer's claim that he was in fear for his life when he was demanding that Sandra Bland step out of the car. A lot of that testimony was like when she grabbed her phone or her cigarettes, that's when he didn't know what she was grabbing for and he was in fear. Now we know that because of this cell phone video, she had her cell phone out the entire time. It was never had to be reached for, and he always had his hands and his weapon drawn to that place. And so the only thing, the motive he had to get out, get her out of the car was the fact that she just wasn't listening to him. It was that she didn't give in to the authority. And again, it's that fear, the same fear that's stopping the Russian police officer from coming forward to the public, the same fear that the officer that shot and murdered Marcus David Peters got to get off It is the fear of those in authority that are causing Black lives to be lost. It's causing our injustice to be continued. And it's really just pushing the privilege of what the police culture is, which is to make sure that Black and brown lives don't progress forward. One thing I do want to also bring attention to is that life was brought into the world yes the royal baby the, the royal baby has arrived <laughs> at this point we don't know the baby's name no 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 oh,
1: it, it came out earlier today today when i'm talking being may 8th oh. imagine that i haven't been following yeah. the royal it's baby. it's something all kinds of is it jamal Magical. <laughs> Come on. Well, because we know CNN is asking, was it CNN asking, how black will the baby be? (gasps) Oh, my
0: gosh. Yeah, no. Foolishness. Foolishness. And as a biracial baby myself, I will just go ahead and say that that baby will be asked, how black are you for the rest of his life? Because that is the interaction that we get from black, brown, and white people is, well, tell me about your black experience. Is it really black? So on his very first day of birth, he got that question.
1: Welcome to the world, Archie Harrison, Mountbatten, Windsor. Wow. I'm not even going to try to repeat that.
0: <laughs> oh, Archie. Gosh. I appreciate Megan. I, I wish we had gone a little bit harder for something something with a little flavor to it, but I, I get it. That's a lot of pressure over there. That's a lot of pressure. That's a lot of pressure. But you know what? Archie is still a black ass name because the baby's black. So welcome, Archie.
1: The last thing, and um, this isn't really new news, but we are, it's germane to our conversation today, is that a few weeks ago, the market on 25th opened.
0: Right. Congratulations to everyone that's been involved in that. I know a lot of folks in the city are super excited to see this market come to fruition, but there's also been a lot of controversy and conversation around it for at least the last year and a half.
1: Yeah, as we'll hear
0: later in the episode. Yep. Today's episode is around something that everyone loves, food. But here at Race Capital, we're going to go one step beyond, as we normally do, and really talk about the impact of a neighborhood when certain systems come together, such as food, philanthropy, nonprofit, real estate investors, and just what that looks like in an entry point specifically around neighborhoods of color.
1: We're going to take a deep dive into food systems today. And a food system is actually a really wide-ranging thing. It goes everything from the way the food is planted, and grown to how it gets different places. So today we're going to talk about some of that and the relationship between equity and justice and food systems and how race is kind of the linchpin that threads that all together in the American food system. This episode is actually the first episode in a new series that we're going to have. Occasionally, we're going to have episodes that fall under a section that we like to call There Goes the Neighborhood.
0: And the topic of food fits right in here because exactly what you just said, Kat, about the systems that bring food into our neighborhood, how that impacts our health, how that impacts just development in the neighborhood, what a neighborhood looks like, and who lives there, who gets to live there.
1: And so that's kind of what There Goes in the Neighborhood is all about, is about shifting spaces in Richmond and the melding segregation, desegregation, shifting of populations in black and white communities.
0: Right, and in order to understand that we have to have a historical lens on how these racial dynamics and decisions have been very intentional right here in our city as well as across the country. And today's guest can do just that. We're excited to invite Daron Chavis, Dron has these conversations all over. In fact, you can find some of this information and more of him really diving into this on a fantastic article called Fighting for Food Justice in a Gendrified Richmond by Kat Maudlin Jackson. Our own. So, big shout out to RVA Magazine for running that article and holding that conversation. And we're going to continue it right here, right now. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Race capital, we welcome Duran Chavis, a native Richmonder, founder of Happily Natural Day, Lewis Ginner Botanical Garden, community engagement manager, urban farmer, community advocate, and new to me, a for real YouTube star, y'all. So welcome, Duran Chavis. Uh,
2: hey. <laughs> I don't know what that means. Uh,
0: it means I followed you on YouTube and you have 27,000 followers, subscribers. I was like, okay, Don. Yes, you better share your message.
2: I know not what to do with it. <laughs> <laughs> I have so much power. <laughs>
0: and it, also, it, it got me really excited, though, because I see that there is a following for the conversations you're having outside of Richmond. I know damn well all 27 grand of those are not, thousand yeah. of those are not at Richmond.
2: Uh, it's a... It's, um... Yeah, there's a lot of people that follow the channel because it's, you know, it's a lot of different topics, you know, that we got on there. I mean, there's a lot of different types of people that we've engaged with or that we're sharing, you know, information mm-hmm, from. Mm-hmm. And so, um, you know, everything from urban ag to black history to healthy eating, you know, it's just a wide array. And so folks are coming from all these different places. I, I don't pay attention to any of my comments all. Anything that comes to my YouTube channel is on mute. <laughs> it's so weird, cause is this, was that on purpose? <laughs> yeah, cause I can't really deal. It's okay. like I can't, I can't respond. Like some people are very interactive on their channel. Yes, I, I y'all talk amongst yourselves, right? You, right. Know, you and, put it out there and enjoy, have a great time with it. You know, if this is, it floats your boat, share, share, share. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah, it's it's been cool. I just found out that I had that many followers though, like maybe like a couple years ago. Okay, because I had put a whole bunch of videos on my page. Uh huh and then just left it and went back and was like, oh, oh, we got a little check in here. There's some money in this thing. Okay,
0: let's do it. Okay, let's do (laughs) it." So, I mean, you've been doing this for a long time. How long would you say you've been in the social justice work?
2: I start with working at the Black History Museum Mm -hmm. in 2002. So I count for, from there, like 17 years. Wow. Um, But, you know, if I go back, you know, to when I was in college, it'd probably be like an additional two, three years, you know, so maybe like 20 years. Mm-hmm. But really, the, you know, like I really cut my teeth on being like, this is what I'm going to do mm-hmm. is when I was at the uh, Black History Museum. Right.
0: Yeah. So on your YouTube channel, you talked about history, urban Egg, mm-hmm. just talking about, I think in my mind, you're a uh, racial justice philosopher, <laughs> to be yeah. honest, of a lot of the, the words you put out there, the work, the different way you stimulate our mind. But for you... As an advocate for food justice, what does that look like?
2: What that looks like for me is I give deference to the elders that, you know, wrap their arms around me in my early years of of being an activist. First, the black women that, you know, introduced me to Garveyism that introduced me to holistic health and wellness that took me up and down the East Coast from Harlem to Brooklyn.
0: Can you um, explain really quickly Garveyism for folks that may? Oh, not heard
2: um, that. Marcus Garvey was a Pan African organizer. He was the founder of the Universal Negro Improvement Association and African Communities League in the early 1900s. His work revolved around engaging people of African ancestry across the diaspora around finding ways to build Mm self-determination and self-sufficiency through economics, business, politics, arts. I mean, he's most famous, or at least as a misnomer for the Back to Africa movement. People think about Marcus Garvey and contextualize him as he was just trying to take all the people from the Americas back to Africa but really he was about building business you know he had a shipping line the Black Star line that was uh, set to import export products from the continent to the Americas also you know traveling with people mm-hmm. um as well they started hundreds of businesses they had the a magazine I mean a newspaper of his of his of his time that was found all across the UK on the continent, South America and the West Indies. Um, so as far as mass mobilization of people of African ancestry, you know, he organized millions of people and the foundations of his work has influenced every mass organization of black people since. So you know, he, he's he's pretty pretty much my I would say my ideological Stand. I stand him like right. I think his work <laughs> is something that all of us need to be studying in right. this time.
0: So please look up Mark, Marcus Garvey, Marcus Garvey Day, August 17th.
2: Mm-hmm. There
0: mm-hmm. are events around town that celebrate him mm-hmm. and that work. So coming from that stance, you started a Black History Museum, yes. You, but even throughout you've gotten... Mentorship.
2: Yeah. So 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 yeah. Um, black women embraced me and introduced me to people all across you know the Eastern Shore board that were doing work around cultural identity and black nationalism, self-determination for people, African ancestry, from all the way from down to Atlanta up to Harlem. And so in that work, I met farmers, you know, I met folks that were already advocates for urban agriculture in different places. But here in Richmond through Happily Natural Day, I met African-American farmers from Virginia, from Gordonsville, from Brunswick County, you know.
1: And just for, sorry to interrupt, and Mm -hmm. just for the listeners who might not know, can you describe Happily Natural Day?
2: Oh, yeah. So uh, Happily Natural Day is a uh, uh, African-centered festival that we founded in 2003 that's dedicated to cultural identity, holistic health and wellness and social change. Like the whole premise of the festival is around, is around people of African ancestry loving themselves unapologetically, connecting to their deeper roots, like prior to the Americas, who, were, who are we, who were we, who can we evolve into, you know, and really, like, addressing inferiority complexes in and, 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 and the community and how they manifest themselves. So it's a festival, music, vendors, you know, workshops, lectures. It's, it's, it's a really amazing day. We've done it. For the last 17 years, we used to do it in Atlanta as well, and, you know, we've been keeping it going. It's, it's a small thing. It's not like the—it's not Afropunk or nothing like that. It's really a pure expression of us doing us, and now we really accent a big part of it around urban agriculture and land and food because of, you know, again, like these farmers that we met through Happily Natural Day helping us attenuate a conversation around agriculture as a form of resistance, right. you know, for our communities of color and um, using food as a tool, you know, for, mm-hmm. you know, our emancipation as, a, as, as, as people, our liberation as a people. So it's been, it's, 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 that's the ride for me, like in terms of food justice, like I came into this work, not purely from like trying to address a food desert or anything like that. I was already rooted and connected to farmers on a rural level who were growing food. And, you know, I kind of got into this gardening slash farming space with a clear, like understanding, like this is about economic empowerment, you know, for our community and, you know, the transformation of the built environment, like all that stuff has multifaceted layers and right. that all that stuff is of benefit. But at the core, mm-hmm. you know, we're talking about food justice. We're talking about land justice. Right. We're talking about environmental justice. Like all of these things intersect, you know, in this work. And yeah. Uh, so do
0: you have a date for Happily Natural Day this year?
2: Yeah, uh, Happily Natural Day is August 31st. We are playing with doing Sunday event. Me and my brother Methuselah from Atlanta, we have been talking about doing a dinner at the Fifth District Mini Farm. We're still working out the kinks, but it, what, what, what it feels, what it seems like is going to happen is that we'll have Happily Natural Day on Saturday, and then we're going to be doing another event Dope. on Sunday. So it'll be like a weekend lockdown.
0: How can people follow that?
2: Happily Natural Day uh, is on Facebook. Just look up Happily, the, the Happily Natural Day Festi- the Happily Natural Festival. It's on Instagram, Happily Natural Festival, I think. And then, yeah, the website, thenaturalfestival.com.
0: So we're talking about food justice, land justice, just justice in general. Can you talk a little bit about the relationship between gentrification Mm. and using a justice framework to address what's happening in Richmond?
2: Food. Oh, man. So uh, so uh, in Richmond, we know that there's. A huge problem with the rapid gentrification of communities of color, specifically in the East and, and in South Side. So before I like talk about how that relates to food, it's like, important for people to be aware. Like What we see in terms of gentrification is a result of race-based policies that promoted a hierarchy of human value that marginalized Black and brown people in the city. Like in the 1950s, when the New Deal came through, Black people couldn't get mortgages and couldn't finance their homes, but white people could. There were race-based covenants in communities where black people could not live and white people could. As a result of uh, this redlining that occurred, you know, communities have been starved for the last 60, 70 years of investment. In addition to the urban renewal that took place that destroyed communities of color all across the city, from Navy Hill to Jackson Ward to Fulton. You know, so when we think about the civil rights struggle, we often miss the mark of understanding that white flight took place and an entire generation or two of white people moved out of the city and moved into the surrounding counties. And what we're bearing witness to in 2019 and 2010 forward is the progeny of those folks that fled coming back into the city, coming back into the areas that have been starved for resources, and finding that those communities, the housing values are low enough for them to get a starter home. So they renovate the home, flip the home, they renovate the home, increase the property value, and then that community starts to bubble and gets, you know, really popular. More and more people buy homes. And as a result, black people get pushed out because they can't afford the increased taxes in the space. Mm -hmm. Some folks are renting And others are on fixed incomes, you know. So these things kind of transition black people out of neighborhoods. So in Churchill, we see it at a really, it's already done. Right, it's finished. It's finished. The gentrification has happened. It's over. And, you know, now black people are probably, in Churchill North, I would say, probably becoming the minority if they're not already the minority. I was looking at Ben Teresa's research where he shows that almost 800 homes 800 african-american homes have been lost you know right. in, um, since 2017 or something like that i mean just oh, really right shout out to crazy.
0: Teresa. he runs eviction lab over at vcu and is yeah. doing tons of work over there with katherine howell
2: yeah so th- saying all that to say like this food conversation intersects with gentrification in a really unique way right. because in communities of color there is Because of the redlining, the same areas that we are seeing the gentrification happen are also the same areas that have high concentrations of vacant property, vacant and blighted property in the city. These are the same areas that do not have access to healthy food. These are the same areas that have large swathes of impervious surface or where literally the block is hotter, you know, because there's no tree canopy. These are also the same areas that experience transit inequity. So, you know, the buses are not running as in, in the same way as in other places. You know, so it's like stackable pathologies in in these communities. So what we've been doing and what we saw is, you know, there's an opportunity in the fact that all of these vacant properties exist and that people could literally take on these properties, transform them into beautiful green spaces that could increase access, increase their access to healthy food, increase the community connectivity, also increase uh, the tree canopy and reduce, you know, some of the pressure in terms of that. So for communities of color, it's a unique space, but at the same time, it's also a unique space for white-led nonprofits. So when we did, when we when we first started in this work, or when we first started this, when I first started as a, you know, doing urban ag in the city, there were already African American men that were doing gardening, mm-hmm. right, but they weren't framing it in like that food desert context or anything like that. So I ended up doing an event with uh, farmers and what they said is that they farm, they don't really have time to bring food into the community. I mean, they can, but there needs to be, a, a, there needs to be somebody on the other side that's in the community that can help logistically with yeah. that. Yeah. So, you know, early in the work, 2008, we started doing pop-up markets. The Richmond Noir market was basically us aggregating produce and serving as a supply chain hub for black farmers and bringing that hub into communities that didn't have access to a grocery store. So we did it first at, in Churchill at what is now, what is that? It, it, it uh, God, it's, it's, um, the it, name of it is the tip of my tongue. Discovery mm-hmm. was the place. Discovery, whatever, did program. Anyway, it used to be something else. When we were working there, it was the East District Family Center. Mm -hmm. So we did it there and then we moved to um, Northside, started doing it at Nubian Village on School Street and then moved from School Street over to Barton Heights at the Battery Park pool. So that's where we kind of lived the space out. So, you know, I came into it from a framework of like farmers, you know, sitting with them, learning about gardening, growing, farming and et cetera. But at the same time, you know, there were other nonprofits that were getting their wings and kind of lifting off. In in communities, and they were getting access to vacant land as well. With they expressing themselves as you know, increasing access to healthy food for those communities. You know, uh, I might pause here, and people say, "Well, what's the problem with that?" Well, the problem with that is that you know, is as that community tries to iterate new ways of being resilient and trying to be self-determining, to have you know a white-led nonprofit in the space that doesn't hire. Any people of color mm-hmm. on its on its uh, staff, right. let alone have any people of color on its board, right. then their engagement with that community becomes one where they're an outsider working in right. with the with their all good intentions, not really working with the community, end up doing for the community. Okay. So we saw several organizations kind of pop up and try to do that. And when community, when I would reach out, I know when I before I got hot you know, <laughs> before I won <laughs> awards and all this type of stuff. Yeah. Like nobody-
0: Richmond Times Dispatch Man of the Year. Yeah,
2: before my name got known, like I reached out to some of those organizations and they brushed me off, you know what I'm saying? Like, all right, whatever, you know? But, um, and even with the city, like when I worked for the city, like we were kicking out, I, I worked for social services and we tried to kick programs to the city like, hey man, you know, we should do this garden stuff. You know, we should integrate it with social services. It just, they weren't hearing it. So anyway, nonprofits, White folks can come into a community and buy property Mm -hmm. right, or use their circles of influence to get access to property in order to do work in communities of color because it's cheaper to do that. And And
0: historically, they've had more access to wealth. And, right. And, and they, they have
2: do. access to more. They have have had access to more wealth. You know, the folks that run the corporations, the folks that run the foundations, the folks that run, you know, municipal government like often are other white folks, right. you know. So they use their networks in order to activate their work. Never being inclusive. Of the communities in which they're working, so the black people that they are in commun- doing this work for are good enough to provide services for, but not good enough to hire. They're not good enough to be in leadership, right?
1: And the justification they use for getting a lot of grants, I understand, is that people don't have access to fresh fruit and vegetables, and so here they are to bring that in. Right. But it seems like they're missing part of the conversation, right?
2: So, and this this the other piece is too, you know. These, these nonprofits are not talking about race. They're not talking about historical systemic issues. They're not articulating to the communities that they're quote unquote serving how ish got to where it is. Mm-hmm. They put a really nice rose colored glass over it and say everybody's in this together. Yes, we are, but at the end of the day, if you're in my community and you're not hiring people from my community, You'd, the people from my community are not on your board but your primary audience that you're servicing are, looks like you know black and brown people then you know you, yeah maybe you are exploiting that community and i looked into guide star and started seeing who was getting money you know what i'm saying and how much money they was getting and who what salary how much salary they was getting people making like 80 what 70 yeah, bruh, making like $80,000 as executive directors of some of these urban ag nonprofits operating in communities of color. Look, yeah. we What is the screenshot it? income? <coughs> the... I want to screenshot that.
0: that we'll, we'll put it out there. That'd be a good uh, we'll visual for the art. For it's this. public information. So I love that. And I appreciate you bringing that up because when you talk about that a lot of these nonprofits aren't talking about race, I've also found that nonprofits that might be talking about race aren't talking about the economic piece that's directly tied to it. They so we don't never have about it. about it together.
2: Never have a conversation about economics. For all intents and purposes, you know, I, I kind of like, I've engaged a lot of these different nonprofits on the conversation about racial equity. And we said, yo, when are y'all going to start talking about racial equity? When are y'all going to start building that into y'all system of engagement and community? And it's always a him and ha. It's like, oh, well, you know, uh, uh, uh. and I'm like, "Yo, man, it's all all you had to do is hire people from the community first. Right. And then second, you need to get people on your board that understand what equity means. And then third, the question that ultimately is, you know, the man in the mirror moment are you here to solve the problem or are you here to get money, you know, servicing the symptoms of the problem? You know what I'm saying? And that's really, that's an ethical question for folks. And sometimes That's an uncomfortable thing for for a person of European ancestry to answer because charity as an industry has built itself around this white savior complex, this idea that you as a white person can go into the community and save the people. You know what I mean? This goes, you know, you've seen the movies. And
0: and it's also intersected with religion, right? And Christianity and the missionary. Exactly, exactly.
2: These unfortunate others need our assistance. We need to come in there. And we're going to drop off the food and, you know, we're going to teach them this and that and this and that. And as a result, you know, they're going to be all the better. It's like never. But but never is there a conversation about how did things get to where they are at? Right. And how do we intentionally undo those things? they totally. feel like that's a too big a conversation for them.
1: Yeah, and not to mention it it's very condescending because mm-hmm. it's like, oh well, you know, I hear a lot people just don't know how, how to, to eat, eat healthy or people just don't know how to do things. And it's like, no, it's not a it's lack not of that. knowledge, it's a lack of resources.
2: Right. It's a lack of resources. And then like why don't they know? Right. Like let's like let's let's just take farming for example, right? So how insulting is it for Someone of European ancestry to tell Black people that Black people don't know how to farm. <laughs>
0: no, oh. right? No, legit. Just I mean, legit. Let's, let's, just, let's just let's just
2: talk about the foundations <laughs> of this country, right? <laughs> the enslavement of African people built the entire economic engine that is America. Yeah. So for a person of European ancestry to say Black people don't know how to farm oh. is like, bruh. Okay, well, well let's let's unpack that. Right. Right. So we're three generations urbanized as people of African ancestry. You know, the Great Migration in the 1950s brought millions of African people from out of the South due to racial terrorism. Right. right? And the loss of land as a result of, you know, these racist policies basically marginalized the black farmer. Right. Right.
0: And validated and done legally with. With
2: lynchings and, and, you know, taking documents and basically saying, no, because you put an X on your name because you weren't literate or maybe you didn't read. This is not your land anymore. Being punitive to African-American farmers that supported civil rights workers in the South. All that stuff. Right. And the USDA denying African-American farmers loans and, you know, funding to mechanize their farms or even in terms of tenant farmers or sharecroppers, like funding white farmers to put their land in conservation that left, you know, entire communities of African people right. unemployed. Like all of this stuff created a system where people were like, I'm getting the hell out of the South. I'm going into a, to the urban area to find a new opportunity. So three generations post moving from a rural environment, maybe in not having access to large swathes of land that white people have had because of the Homestead Act back in the day, you know, Folks, white folks were given the opportunity to go all across the country and lay claim to land en masse, and that not being afforded to people of African ancestry, right? So who has land, who doesn't? Like, that's, that's another conversation. Who farms and who doesn't? Who still is successfully farming because of these race-based policies that occurred and who's not?
0: And so if you don't know that history, you might be ignorant enough to ask the question or say the statement that black people don't know how to farm.
2: Right. And and, 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 and even in unpacking why they don't know how to farm or why, why. Because legit, like there are black people in communities of color that don't know anything about farming mm-hmm. or their reference point to farming right. is slavery. And that's it. Yes. And so it's like. Okay, who disconnected you from the land? You know what I'm saying? And how were you disconnected from the land? And then, I mean, it gets deep because I think about people like every elementary school kid in the country learns about George Washington Carver every February we learn about him (laughs) so just february yeah just february but but and and, but the thing is is like we learn about him but we don't understand we don't hear about how pivotal his research was in terms of building the foundations of what we call the modern organic movement regenerative farming this guy was talking about composting this guy was talking about cover cropping this guy was talking was literally taking the farm on the road the foundation for the modern cooperative extension starts with George Washington Carver collaborating with Booker T. Washington at Tuskegee. Yes. Right? We don't hear about W.E.B. Du Bois doing his sociological research in the South connecting with black farmers. You know, We don't hear about Fannie Lou Hamer being a farmer getting into the Civil Rights Movement, you know, Mississippi Democratic Convention, she catalyzes, you know, what's going on in the travesties in the South. After the Voting Rights Act is passed and Civil Rights Act is passed, she goes back to farming with the same idea of building self, self-determination, self-sufficiency for communities of color. So we don't, nobody's interpreting that. Nobody's explaining, nobody's teaching this continuum of connectivity to the land that we've had as, as African people. And even just in terms of diet, like we hear about soul food, right? Yes. Uh, So people talk about like us eating, you know, unhealthy and stuff like that. You know, if you talk to an elder or somebody that grew up in a rural environment, they'll tell you that they weren't eating pig all the time. They weren't eating chicken all the time. They're primarily plant-based diets because who can afford to kill all the chickens every night? Like, just think (laughs) about it. Like, logically, think about it. The
0: first time you said (laughs) that to me, I was just like, no, that that makes all the sense. Right. Right, right.
2: If you have a right. farm as right. a family, you're yes. growing your food. It's not like yeah. you can go to the market every day. <laughs> right. You're exactly. a sharecropper. You're working for, you know, or a tenant farmer. You're working in a rural environment. You might do this or do that. But you're primarily growing the food for right. your family, right? Right. right. Yeah. So in that space, well, I raised, I have six chickens at my house. So it's a lot. But if I have land, you know, maybe I can grow more. But just the idea of killing the chickens, yeah. every killing chickens every day. Right. to eat or killing, slaughtering your pigs every day. It's like these pigs are a part of your entire, you know, farm process. It's like you might kill, you might slaughter for a special occasion. Right, right, right. But it's not like you're doing it every day.
1: Chickens are not finite.
2: Right. Chickens are not infinite. infinite. Yeah, it's not. You don't have infinite chickens on the farm. You don't have infinite. (laughs) You might have. You got plenty of eggs. Right. You know what I'm saying. You might end up smoking. You might end up slaughtering a pig and then smoking to preserve. You know, for days to come. But it's not like that was our primary food source, and so. Right. All of these things intersect and interweave into, you know, what we see that is lacking in terms of engagement by white-led urban ag nonprofits in communities of color, not just in Richmond. Right. This is nationally. Right. You know what I'm saying? Right. This is all across the country. This is even going into like developing countries. You mm-hmm. know, like mm-hmm. there are white folks that go into a developing country, so we're going to teach these people how to farm. Like, brah. like, <laughs> <laughs> like yeah, how are you going to teach? Like, maybe there's a conversation need to be had about the equipment that they need. You know what I'm saying? Right. Again, back to access to resources.
0: So, talking about There Goes the Neighborhood, we've done a really, I think you've done an amazing job of. Telling us about historically what got us here to where the neighborhood is now and where it's going. I'd love to hear your thoughts about the new 25th market. Mm our market at 25th street and the market at 25th street opened up just a couple weeks ago right. and it is framing itself as a community market and bringing in businesses from around the community. It's not just a grocery store. It is right. something different. It's right. a different place. Right. It is really being pushed out there as something we've never seen before in Richmond. And it is happening in church Hill, which we know we just talked about is been gentrified right. to the fullest. Certainly. And I've heard them talk about food justice in this conversation. The
2: grocery store at Market 25th is not an example of food justice. It is not an example of food justice. It's an example of a white philanthropist coming into a community saying that he wanted to build a grocery store and then finding another white guy to run said grocery store in a community that was already gentrified.
1: What do you say to the people who say, oh, we have black vendors here?
2: That's great. So that's an amazing thing. Like creating a supply chain is amazing and creating an opportunity for folks to distribute their products is great, but the community does not own the distribution point. Mm -hmm. So in a conversation about food justice, if it's truly just, then said community that is indigenous. So let me back up. So people, so Churchill is a unique situation. Churchill- has been invested in and has had a magnifying lens over top of it for at least twenty years. Like people saying it's you know it's a food desert, it's high concentrated poverty. What we need to do about Churchill? So Churchill has already been the 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 the, the wave of newcomers into Churchill has already been ongoing right before, way before there was a market at twenty fifth. So what we saw in Churchill is that most of the people were already being pushed out and displaced. When the idea for the grocery store came on the table, it was positioned as this space that would increase access to healthy food, implying that the communities that lived there already did not have access, which they did not. But it was also implied that this would be done for you know the community that had long suffered lack of access. Now it's amazing to create an opportunity for people to market and sell their products inside of a store. It's amazing that this project is a collaboration between Bon Secours, VCU, J. Sargent Reynolds. It's amazing that there are Black-owned businesses that are being given an opportunity to position themselves inside of this space. What I think would have been even more amazing is if the store and its subsequent buildings around that collaboration would have been built by black contractors because and we had that conversation and we were told that black contractors were not ready which was just insane to me because i knew i i I was in the meeting passed the card and contact for a black contractor that had just built the black history museum the armory Mm -hmm. on um lee street so i said okay well if he could build the armory how is it that he can't get a contract from you guys to build any element you know, on, on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on a very intimate level of this development. And this is from the, you know, the folks at the top. So it's okay that no black contractors would build the store, that communities, they, they, but they would hire from the community. So that, so just, just parse that out. We're good enough to hire, but we're not good enough to be invested in as the businesses that are doing the hiring. How does that perpetuate a, system, a, a, a systemic inequity? And we know that this was a philanthropist led effort. So the question is, is like, he didn't have any mandates, even though they got $500,000 from the city, they didn't have any mandates to hire any black contractors. And he sw- there was no SWAM certification necessary for this project to take place. But because he's private philanthropy, he could have spent his money any way he chose to and could have mandated that black contractors be on the front end, not subcontracted or building out some miscellaneous element of the store but like no who gets the most money it could have been a conversation about those African-Americans that are contractors in the city being congealed or in in some sort of collective to do that the second part about it would have been what would have been amazing is if we remember the North Abroad proposal brought to the table this idea of a TIF, tax increment financing, and that they could literally create a line around a certain area of a community and freeze the taxes for that area that's inside of those lines. Ben Teresa talks about all this stuff. We know that Churchill, the area where the market of 25th has been placed, is already rapidly gentrifying. People are being pushed out in mass. We've already seen the data on it. So the question becomes well, how, why wasn't there a conversation about creating a TIFF around the residents of those homes and owners of those homes so they wouldn't be threatened to be pushed out? Why wasn't there a benefit, a community benefits agreement locked in with the contractors that were hired so that? monies and profits would be set aside for low-income community members who were being threatened, who will be threatened with higher pressures as the tax assessment for those communities increase. Right Right now, it's like $250,000 average for a house in that area, according to Zillow. A first-time homeowner, your credit score is 600, 650, 620, and you might be eligible for a loan for up to $160,000. So you can't even afford to live to buy a first time home in the community that black people have been pushed out of and so now the question remains is like well how could they have had a pre how, how could they have had a, com- a conversation before all this stuff came about that would have taken those things into consideration and worked with the city in order to safeguard individuals that are already in the community? Yeah, so I mean, a grocery store, and then at the end of the day, a grocery store is not enough. It's, it's it's again, about ownership, who owns the grocery store, even though the grocery store is according to people, they say they, they don't make a lot of profit. Fine. Why wasn't the grocery store set up as a nonprofit then? Mm -hmm. If 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 we if we love to tote that line that grocery stores don't make a lot of money, then we have a huge philanthropic community. Why didn't we make it a nonprofit and thereby philanthropic dollars could have been built in? You know, board of supervisors. You know, could have been populated by community members of color that were already inherently living in that community. These are the questions that I ask. But I think they did a great job with getting the design right. They spent a lot of energy on making sure that this, you know, the store had the look and feel that was representative of what Churchill residents or indigenous Churchill residents would want. There's a lot of, like you said, there's a lot of local products. You know, folks are catching a wave by having their you know, stuff inside of the store. There's been some issues. People have been talking about the prices, you know, like somebody was telling me today that they would get one cereal from Foodline that was like $3 and they went into the store and saw it at the market at twenty fifth for six dollars.
1: What? Yeah, for a box of Cheerios.
2: It's, it's not. It's I, I don't. I can't think of the name right. of the cereal that they're talking about but isn't like one cereal, it's a cereal that they like, that they're, that's their fave and so they went to buy it and it was like you know, it was like three something, but it's like three something in, um, Food Lion, but it was like six.
0: That's what I was wondering, is this going to be a Martin's, like a Martin's price versus a Food Lion price? And we don't, we don't know and I had have, I haven't been in there, full disclosure yeah. but we're talking about profit and that sort of thing was a question of what to
2: Oh, and then speaking of the, the produce, oh this is the, so the other piece that is disheartening is that we had a whole conversation. I don't know whether or not this panned out or not, but I was insulted when I had a conversation with the folks, the the, the philanthropists, as well as uh, Norm Gold, and they said that they were going to purchase produce from Shalom Farms and Tricycle Gardens. And I said, hold up, skirt, 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 wait. So you mean to tell me that these white-led nonprofits that are in our city growing food, quote unquote, for communities of color, not only are, is there a disproportionate amount of funding that they receive in contrast to black organizations that are doing urban ag. Now, on top of that, y'all are going to contract with them to purchase food from them so that you can make the produce affordable inside of the grocery store instead of investing in the indigenous community members so that they can grow the food and get that subsidized, get that, get that check. It's like, oh, y'all totally missed the point. And I, I I ain't trying to throw, you know, you supposed to talk to me or anybody, but they didn't talk to Johnny Johnson, who was the last grocery store in Churchill he had the community pride i sent them a message like have y'all even talked to johnny johnson they asked me if i had his phone number I'm like bruh Come on. Yeah, are you serious I like know. really like nah yeah. nah I, I know how to get in contact with him though <laughs> i went on linkedin it was like boom 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 johnny johnson like these people you should talk to them right. you know what i mean That's so it's just easy. total you know from the right. giddy up just even though so basically all, all i'm saying is that this was a white-led project that communities of color had to fight their way into
0: and mm-hmm. even still it's not an ownership piece it's
2: not ownership and I ain't here to rain on your parade. People are probably like boo to run. I'm just saying that yeah. this is the reality, though. Right. You know?
0: And I understand because a lot of people, especially those that have friends in there that have their own businesses in there, they feel like they have to champion that. Right. But yeah, right. especially me and just what I talk about. Speaking truth, I appreciate you calling that out of really what it is from an economic piece what yeah this from is an economic perspective. Like, from the houses around the grocery store what that's going to really affect the neighborhood itself and
2: So imagine if you was um, imagine if you were down with if you knew three years ago that right. this investment was going to be made in this right. community right. if you knew before anybody else knew. Like if somebody was already saying, hey, we're about to do this. Not to say that this is malignant or anybody did this, but just imagine if you got wind of this Mm -hmm. in the circles as a developer or as a a realtor. You know, what kind of boon are you about to experience because you already copped? A bunch of properties that right. you know that you're about to get a massive flip on. And see so this is how circles of wealth operate. You because go. We, if you don't know the information, right. which black people usually don't know the information after it's already been set up. And this is a case in point example of us getting the information after a decision had already been made. Right and then having to reconcile with the decision that had been made and try to find our way and fit inside of it.
0: Exactly, and it is that that circle of decision making that's a privilege that they have to be in those networks. And I will say that I heard Cynthia Newville at City Council saying that she wanted one of these grocery stores, these community stores all around the city. So this was just the first of maybe many. So this conversation can keep going. But while we have just a few more minutes of your time, we want to head to our next segment, which is... What's Your Privilege? What's Your Privilege is a segment where we invite our guests to talk about what privilege that they experience and how they use that to disrupt the myth of white supremacy within their ecosystem. So Mr. Chavis...
2: I'm black of African ancestry. I'm not of Latinx ancestry. You know, I'm not of Indigenous South American or Mexican or anything of that nature. So I'm not an immigrant. And as a result, I have the privilege of not having to worry about ICE mm-hmm. coming and messing with my family or deporting anyone in my family as a result of the activism that I do in community. I am privileged to have two legs, so I'm uh, and that are functional. So I, I'm not differently abled. I am heterosexual, so I don't experience discrimination on the basis of my sexuality. Yeah, I'm male. There
0: you go. I was like, come on, Daron. You got it. <laughs> You're going to say it for
2: me. I'm but male. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't have to deal with gender inequity. Mm-hmm. I don't have to deal with the same level of systemic issues that my sisters had to experience. You
0: don't have to list all of them, but you... Uh...
2: That's, that's what I got right now.
0: Okay. So how do you use those spaces?
2: As a As a man, as a black male, like my... Conversation is always about holding space and stepping out of space and pushing or like encouraging women of color, you know, around me to take the lead. Uh, it's always been the reality for me that it was women of color that wrapped their arms around me and uh, nurtured me in this work. You know, as it relates to being differently abled, you know, when we develop spaces, I'm always mindful of whether or not this space is actually accessible for someone that might be differently able. Right. you know. So am I building paths in mm-hmm. a space that someone can actually put a wheelchair on and, 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 and ride through? Are the, are the beds at least two feet, you know, high so that if someone is sedentary and wants to garden or has ambulatory issues, they can get in and, and do the thing? as far as my sexuality, I guess, one of the ways is I just try to hold space, you know, for folks. I'm not I'm I'm practicing trying to detox, you know, my own inherent chauvinisms and misogyny. Um, so I don't know.
0: Thank you for that, Daron. And I'll just very quickly say that my privilege that I'd like to highlight this week is one of transportation and having accessible transportation to get where I need to go. Because I do live in Southside where we do not have access to a grocery store. So I'm able to get in my car and head to the nearest store or maybe one that's not so near so I can get better pricing. Mm. That is my privilege this week as we talk about there goes our neighborhood and I can actually drive out of my neighborhood to get what Mm.
2: I need. Mm, yeah. Thanks for that.
0: Yeah. Thank you so much, Deron, for being here. Thank you. I have a feeling I will be inviting you back, especially as we continue on with the segment of "There Goes the Neighborhood" and yeah. all that you're doing. So thank you for your work. Thank you for your 20 plus years.
2: Now, thank you for giving me the opportunity to be on your platform.
0: And how
1: can people follow you?
2: I'm at Duran Chavis on everything: Facebook, social media, uh, Instagram, Twitter. You know, it's Deron Chavis. You, YouTube,
0: Deron Chavis. Yeah,
2: YouTube. <laughs> the- <laughs> No, <laughs> I hit that I was Don't so know, power. proud of you though. I
0: was like, Yes, to But yeah,
2: so please uh look out for Darrell with everything he's doing in the community and we'll talk soon. All right. We yeah, be blessed. Chicka. Ooh. <laughs> Ooh
0: conversation with Duran, we talked a lot about Churchill, but I have a very personal connection to Southside being that's where my family's from. That's where I live right now. And watching the changes in Southside that are happening as well as what isn't happening. I've been back in Southside formally now for a year and a half. And as I mentioned earlier, the biggest part of my transition is finding a grocery store. I used to live over in Scott's Edition, where we had plenty of access to the Kroger and Aldi, but now I have to make a deliberate plan to do that. So what if I just want a sandwich or something? We've got Brewer's Cafe, but otherwise not a whole lot of options that I know of being around the neighborhood for a long time. I drove down Perry Street the other day. I did not even recognize it, Kat. The condos, townhouses, or whatever is over there now. And Perry Street is literally like four streets over from me. (laughs) And I could not believe the new age living accommodations that are coming. Right. When I moved back to Richmond after five years
1: away, I was driving through Southside. I thought I was lost when I drove down Hull Street. I was confused.
0: Yeah. And it's literally one street is brand new apartments, brand new accommodations. And then the next street, it's completely run down. There is a completely different demographic walking around. And we know that the developers are taking over this whole Southside Blackwell Historic District. I spoke to a developer last week that said that they are pretty much done with Churchill and they're moving to Southside. And he even very openly told me they've been accused of gentrifying. And I looked at him and I said, well, do you understand what your impact is doing to communities? And he said, well, yeah, but we're just in this business. This is what we're we're trying to do. We're trying to make them affordable and do different rent stuff. But we're still just getting yelled at a whole lot. And what we see in that conversation
1: of affordable housing a lot of the times when it comes to these developments is typically it has there's one only in a handful of units in these buildings. Yep, Very few. It's very competitive process. And two, the qualification for income is about 60% of AMI. AMI is area median income, or yeah, I think it's area yep. median income, right? which is not a lot of money, but it's not, that is still not an accessible price point for folks with low incomes.
0: Right. And remembering that the AMI looks at region, right? So Chesterfield, Henrico, financials, economic income, not just the city and the actual space of that medium income for that area so it's ridiculous that our city council our city administration is making affordable housing choices based on a regional number like right there that talks about the inequities that Duran also talked about about systems policies that are set up for black and brown neighborhoods to not have a chance to really make and have these resources and benefits to where they can build again after historic wrongs harms those same policies that have hit us for generations are still really being impacted impacting us today so in south you know i I'm watching a lot of amazing things happen and Black folks really stepping up, just like we've always done, and claiming space. But even for like a restaurant, Pig & Brew, that has been vandalized multiple times and mm-hmm. had to close down and had a lot of the developers and affluent neighbors around saying that they should close, they're bringing danger to the neighborhood. But truly, they keep opening up and I give it to them. They're not going anywhere. They're going to try and stay there as long as they can. And I think it's important for us to recognize that resilience, whether we agree or whether we see it as who they are and just really trying to build their own in their own neighborhood or not, we have to respect that resilience that's coming from these different Black businesses right there on Southside. So it's interesting on how these relationships are forming all the way from our city council person that's very aligned with developers and give to campaigns to how these spaces are going to transform in the future. So it has gone to officially Manchester, right? Not the South Side. It's not downtown. If if you've been around South Side long enough, you know that that area, they used to just call that downtown um, because it was so close to the bottom. And now I'm scared to even call it by name because it is always like the Manchester, South Side, Blackwell. I don't even recognize it anymore. And that's sad. That's I don't know, Kat, it's just, this is happening in all different parts of the city. And if we don't use our voices soon enough, just like Duran said, these whispers and conversations, decisions are being made years in advance. So by the time we recognize what's happening, we're just trying to fit in, push in the door, use our voices that may be deemed as loud, aggressive, criminal, threatening. We're really just trying to defend our land. And I appreciate Duran using the terms indigenous, indigenous richmonders because we've got to have that framework of whose land are we on so that's why we're going to keep this conversation going and continue to talk about the historic wrongs the policies and and seeing the impact of the neighborhood thank you everyone to listening to race capital this is chelsea and this is kat we'll catch you next week
2: I'm from the <laughs> <laughs>